Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 47, Deconstructing the List Lesson. My name's Sean Tiber. I am a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. So it's a Sunday morning, Kelly, we're recording. I think it's like coffee talk with Kelly and Sean. We're, we're both uh, waking up and ready to talk about lists this week. Absolutely, and, and I have my Lego cup. <laughs> I know, I'm a little envious, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. We, want, we wanted to do this week was actually talk about not just lists, but how we teach lists. I think everyone who works with Python learns about lists probably within the first few hours, 8, 10, 12 hours of learning Python, you have this idea of lists. But what we don't really talk about is how do you teach that? And now that we've done this for a few years and quite a few iterations, I think it's a pretty good place to start with talking about the teaching behind lists and how we go about doing that. I know, I, I feel like we get a lot of questions about really what do we do and how do we get the kids to where we are. So I'm really excited about this topic. Yeah, me too. It's a nice thing that everyone knows how lists work. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the actual list in Python. We're going to talk more about how we teach it. Oh, and I, so I can't think, show off my skills of what I know, like list methods and list comprehensions. <laughs> okay, we will link to a gist on GitHub that Kelly will publish of all of her list. <laughs> No, thanks. Okay. <laughs> Moving okay. on. Well, you want to show off to that level? Okay. No. <laughs> All right. So let's start the way we always do before we get into teaching lists. Let's talk about the wins of the week. And Kelly, I'm going to make you go first because I still need a few seconds to think about my win this week. Awesome. I'm going to steal it because you're going to go, I wish I would have had that win. Mine's not about coding. I think the real win of the week is that we have made it through our first week and a half of school without any mental breakdowns. We went virtual. We got a lot of our teachers up and going, a lot of conversations with teachers and helping them off the cliff of how do they do virtual learning for a week. And we're about to switch into a half virtual half in school mode and the fact that the teachers are there they're confident and um, we're all ready to go as well and we know what we're doing for the most part <laughs> I think that's a huge win on any anybody's list today haha <laughs> list <laughs> and I, I feel like a lot of teachers out there are feeling this win that we we're in it we're in this 2020 2021 school year and we are like every other teacher we're ready ready to survive and I feel like that's a huge win for me right now. I, I feel like I can survive whatever life shoots at us. I, I agree. I've really been amazed at how you've been helping everyone get to that point. It's almost like the the education therapist for teachers this week. <laughs> and psychologists. <laughs> psychologists. <laughs> yeah. And and we've divided up the work pretty well. So I've been on campus with the teachers who are there. You've been working with all the teachers that are virtual and covering so much ground over Zoom. It's pretty amazing how much we've been able to get done this week. We're at the point, I was speaking with a kindergarten teacher on campus earlier this week, and she was asking, well, is it okay if I do this? Or is it okay if I hold off on my morning meeting for a little while later? And I said, look, we're in waffles for dinner mode, okay? If you need, <laughs> so this is one of those things where if you need to eat frozen Eggo waffles for dinner because that's how you get fed, do it. But, How did you know I just bought a whole bunch of box soups to make it through next week? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. At this point, we are, we're just trying to get it done by whatever means possible, and we're ready for that. We've, gotten, we've got the tools we need. We've got the training we need. Now we just have to go do it. 
it is not going to be perfect, but it'll be a really good start and we'll build up from there. Absolutely. Agreed. Yeah. So now that I've, I've set that staged, I think you have that good win because you survived putting up all these cameras for everybody. We have all these uh, cameras, the owl, the meetup, and oh my goodness, you've been setting them up. I think that was a huge win. Well, that was, I'll let you pick that, your own win. <laughs> that was that was pretty cool, and and the big breakthrough was setting up the Calendly link so that people could book time with me because the number of requests coming in were pretty intense. So it made it a lot easier for my own workflow. But that's not actually the win of the week I was going to cover. I'm actually going to steal one of yours because you put this together, and I shamelessly borrowed it, stole it for my classes as well. But the choice boards that we talked about uh, in our last episode have been working really, really well with our students. I think once they got the idea or the concept down of it, they just put their heads down and went for it. And that ability to give them some choices in what they wanted to learn and the order in which they wanted to learn it really seemed to make a difference in their level of engagement. And it really made it easier for me to manage the classroom while everyone was virtual. So I'm looking forward to our future choice boards. I've got some ideas for how we can apply those in a bunch of different areas. But we also got a compliment from one of our fellow teachers who's also a parent who said her daughter is transformed this year for computer science. The choice board has made it so she's just into it and excited. She told her mom to buzz off because she was working on her computer science homework at five o'clock at night and she didn't want to be disturbed. <laughs> so <laughs> so awesome. That, the ability to have that agency and to choose what you want to learn, I found it so interesting. I don't know if you looked deeply into some of the outcomes, but the difference of some students. So some students chose all the right the program activities and some other students really did the reflection parts. Both of them were learning. Both students, type of students, were digging through the same topics, but some students really liked the reading part and trying to look for their muddiest points and look for things that they didn't know or they learned. And the others ones, they were just, they coded the four different programs. It was so cool. I kind of got a glimpse into that child and how they learn. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. The different ways that students learn, you can find it just by asking them, okay, which one looks like the easiest thing to tackle next? And the answers were so varied because they'd say, you know, I think this coding, these pie bites are going to be really easy. I'm going to go do this. And other and different kids would look at the exact same thing and say, oh, I don't want to do the coding. I'm going to go read this thing or do a puzzle or something else because they're, they learn differently. Their brains work differently. And being able to give them that choice lets them feel that sense of confidence in their own learning that they can accomplish it and they can make it work. So it's something that we're going to use a lot more this year. And it's really going to make a big difference for the way that students learn. So, Kelly, I know we've had some pretty big wins, and we've been working really hard for them. Do you have any fails this week that you'd like to share to show some of that vulnerability in in our teaching and our professional lives? I have a personal one and and a student teacher one. So my personal one is I've actually failed on doing any Python coding for about two weeks now, and I feel like personally I've let myself down. And I haven't progressed any. And I'm now back into the basic modes again. And I feel that I've overlearned how to do lists and variables and data types and basics for sixth graders. I haven't progressed professionally, but that's okay. I think that fail, that imposter syndrome kicks in for me every single time I fall back to the beginning of sixth, sixth grade uh, uh, Python, where I'm like, oh, I only know this stuff. 
and I know it really well. <laughs> so that's like a, a big fail that I think I go through every beginning of the quarter, which is funny, but I think I'm getting over it a little bit. Okay, <laughs> I have you? one word that will solve all of this for you. Okay. Regex. Uh, <laughs> you know how to do regex. Regex. <laughs> regex. <laughs> right. You know how to do regex. You are way beyond the basics. So Absolutely. But I gotta I gotta sharpen up my list comprehensions there. All right, we'll work on that. Maybe we can talk about that as some of the extension opportunities. For me, the the fail of the week is embarrassing, but I broke our camera. The <laughs> the really expensive camera that we got that makes it so much better for students to view the classroom and to feel like they can be there and participate when they're remote. And I left it on a tripod that wasn't quite stable enough. And when I came back the next morning, at some point in the night, it had been tipped over and broke and landed on the lens. So I got to have a very uncomfortable conversation with my boss about how about we take a moment to learn how the repair and warranty processes work for our new cameras. <laughs> so it was all okay. It was something that was not intentional or anything like that, but we are getting it repaired. And I'm also working on a 3D printed ring that goes around the lens so that if it falls over again, it hits the ring and not the expensive part. Isn't that fail forward? How can we upstream? We should have uh, thought about that instead of downstream actions here. All these books that I was reading <laughs> yeah, this summer. Yeah. Maybe it will lead to other things. Once I have this part designed, maybe uh, you'll be able to order it on Amazon soon or something. We'll Absolutely. See. We'll put those to the proceeds. I'm just going to claim those. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I deserve some of those proceeds on that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Probably. All right. So we'll we'll fail forward on that one. But it was definitely an oh no moment when I saw that. All right. Let's jump into our main topic here. And I think this is, like I said before, um, at the top of the show, I think this is going to be a really great topic because everyone generally knows how lists work. Maybe you're totally an expert and you get it. You've been using them for years. Maybe you actually implemented the lists or, or something if Guido's listening to this. But it's something that we all have some level of exposure to. But one of the things we don't necessarily do is think about how do we teach that? So how do people who are new to lists learn it in the most effective way? And how do we enhance their learning through all the different ways that they can approach it and the ways that they learn it? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of good teaching involved. I think sometimes when you're a computer scientist or a programmer and not necessarily a teacher, you forget that there's a lot of skills involved as a teacher in the planning and the production of presenting a topic that sticks for the kids. And I think that's something that we have and we were talking about this that we have really honed in on and we have been able to go through that agile uh, development design process where we've just almost not I'm going to say perfected because I, I don't believe in perfection but we've got it pretty good so I think what we'll do just to give you some structure to the conversation is we're going to go through this in a, a few different areas we're going to start with the goals for the topic what do we want the students to learn then we're going to talk about how we introduce that to students so how do we introduce this concept and set the stage for why we're learning about lists then we'll show some examples and demonstration uh, ideas that you can use in your classroom we're then going to talk about the practical applications of lists so how do you think about lists in your own coding and how we teach that to students so how we get them to think about when and where they can use lists 
we're going to talk about synthesis opportunities so how they can combine lists with other topics in python because that ability to synthesize demonstrates a higher level of learning and understanding than merely being able to recall the information and then lastly we're going to show a little bit about how to make it creative and fun and make it come alive for students so but that's our roadmap for the conversation today so that you have a sense of where we're going with this but by the end of this episode what we want you to have is an understanding of what goes into teaching a lesson about lists and the thought process that we go through and Kelly and I do this in an organic way. We do this conversationally where we're talking about different parts of this. We touch on lots of different elements of the lesson at each time, but this gives us a little bit more structure for our conversation and we'll share this uh, structure as part of our show notes. That's a a really good outline and I I like how this is laid out for everyone because it, it starts on something that I truly believe in as a teacher is that backwards by design process. And I liked how our episode is going to be laid out for you. And I'm hoping that we can share this. Well, this is our first time doing this, sharing our secrets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a little I, bit nerve wracking. <laughs> it also is a little bit different. You're getting a peek behind the curtain of how we think about teaching. And uh, you can use this approach for any topic in Python, outside of Python. The things that we're going to share today are definitely generalized across a lot of different areas, but we'll use lists as the example for how we teach it. Yeah, and I want to set the stage for everyone. If you're not familiar with our structure, we do teach 6th, 7th, and 8th. So this is a development of the the students' cognitive skills over a three-year span, over a three-year course. So 6th grade newbies they've come in maybe they know scratch maybe some kids have done python maybe they've worked with microbits with uh, make code and we're sending them off at the end of eighth grade ready to go into ap comp sci so it is a, a development over three years and in theory it, it could be changed into a longer program i'm not really sure how that would translate for some people that do this as a year but this is a, a rapid iteration for us over three yep. years Yep. So we always start these lessons uh, in each unit with what do we want the kids to know? What do we want our learners to have at the end of this unit or this lesson? So we start with that backwards by design. So we go through that and look at where we're coming from. So what, where are they starting? And then where do we want them to be? And then we can look at the space in between and figure out how to best get them there. It's a little bit like road mapping for them, setting out some guideposts. And we are, the important distinction here is that we are not setting only one path for the students. We want to lay out several different paths that they can follow and choose from in order to get to that same goal at the end where they have the understanding of how things work. Absolutely. It's that we, we do have this kind of outcome, this assessment first, sometimes starting with the, the younger age at the sixth grade age, it's a very finite with a little bit of student agency choice but it's a pretty much finite outcome most of the kids are going to produce the same type of list or the same methods of the list but it's working on this where do I want the kids to to be and what type of outcome do I want to see in their product so that's where we mean by backwards by design. We don't go out and say my first lesson, my second lesson, my third lesson. We say here at the end of say this unit, this list unit, the kids are going to be at this point. They should be able to produce this act, 
this action. We'll talk about our actions later. But right. it's that set focus. And then from there, we back up and we present the learning opportunities. This can also have some differentiation in it also because like we some students are starting at a, a more advanced position, so they may want to end at a more advanced position as well. So we will often do, here are the minimum expectations, and then here are intermediate and advanced goals that they can achieve as well. So examples of this with the list lesson might be meeting expectations might be the ability to create a list and to be able to add and remove items from the list. Intermediate expectations might be that they're able to use uh, adeptly use string index, uh, indexes or indices to be able to find items in the list and then it, and maybe use some of the different methods like sorted and sort to be able to sort the elements in the list and then advanced usage might be things like string slicing or being able to do a list comprehension so we can put that differentiation in to our goals to be able to see here are the things that different students can do and not every student is going to get to the advanced level, but if we can get 95% of them to the meets expectations level, where they're getting that minimum expectations, we've you know succeeded with the lesson. And then the next time our goal is to get to 96% or 97% of the students. Absolutely. And and that progression of learning, it's we have this kind of focused, I, I'm going to use the Bloom's taxonomy because we talk about that, but this focused taxonomy, this uh, learning taxonomy of what the kids are going to go through. For example, at the at the younger age, in sixth grade, I really focus on vocabulary, and I love the, the op- opportunity to just keep saying the words and quizzing them on the words and not necessarily the product, but that comes out after my my desired intention for their learning. But that that idea, if I, if I say something, if I say a vocabulary word, they're gonna trigger this picture in their heads. So that's like basic recall, right? Like that they, when they hear the word, they understand the, the meaning of it in some way, shape or form. Exactly, right? and able to communicate their understanding so they can actually pick up something specific and communicate where they have that disconnect. The other thing that we do with this before we move on to the introductions and how we introduce this, the other thing that we need to do is establish what they need to know before we start this. So what's the prerequisite knowledge that we can build from in order to make this lesson happen? So in the case of lists, that would be things like they have to have a fundamental understanding of data types and how to assign variables and variables in general. But they and they it would be helpful if they've done some things with for loops before because that's a great way to synthesize knowledge later between the lists and the for loops. But you can differentiate and create this this list of here are the things that they need to know in order to do this. Here are Here's knowledge that would be nice to have because it will help accelerate or improve their acquisition of the information. Absolutely. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you for a loop. I'm going to move up a number three to number one on our outline. But I think it's very important that we give some solid foundation for our listeners because it's hard to picture what we're really talking about. And so I'll set the example with sixth grade. When we go in to teaching this lesson, my outcome in mind is that the kids are going to make some sort of invite app, whether it's for a a 12th grade birthday, a 25th wedding anniversary for their parents. It's some sort of invite. Think about a wedding invite where you have to choose beef or chicken or are you going to the reception or are you going only to the wedding and 
I think about how this stuff can be stored in a list and how choices can be given to the user. And I set that stage for the students because that is where I want them to be. That's my desired outcome, my desired assessment, because I know by doing this invite app of whatever they choose to do, that they're going to have to make some list. I can backwards up, and that's what you were saying about what we want them to know, our desired assessment evidence. What is that evidence that's that we're going to look for that makes sure that our students have learned the topic at hand. Yeah, that and I, kind of set the stage a little bit. That that helps. And I think the, the key there is to set your expectations to be realistic, set real, uh, realistic expectations for what they should be doing. And this is often hard the more knowledge that you have yourself. For example, one of the traps that I fall into is a student will demonstrate the concept that they get it, they understand it, but it may not be the most Pythonic implementation. And so I'll, I'll go in and say, but if you format it this way, or if you do this, or here's a better way to do that, and sometimes that can make it less understandable for them or less attainable if there's if we're always pushing them to the next level or something that's more Pythonic. So sometimes you have to put that behind you and really focus on did they grasp the concept? Are they going through back to Bloom's taxonomy? Are they demonstrating that they've synthesized it with other information? Are they demonstrating that they can share it with others or teach others? Are they being creative with it? And less so about are they being Pythonic in the way that they do it? And I'm sure a bunch of developers are going to cringe about this, but there's something beautiful about ugly code from a sixth grader. I I look, it's something you can just see. You can look into this code and you can almost see the process of their thinking. And there's something so beautiful for me when I'm looking at someone's code and they're like, I have this error and I'm, I'm reading. It's like a novel. And you read this, this code and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what they were trying to do. That's so cute. And so I, I, there's something really beautiful for me about ugly code and the fact that it's not tidy and it's not necessarily following PEP 8. I mean, we're talking about 11 and 12 year olds. So every developer who's cringing about this moment saying, oh no, we need to follow the rules and poor Guido. <laughs> with it. Actually, I'm sure Guido would be the first person to agree that there Good. is something beautiful and ugly code. So <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I mean, he, he might ask for some type hinting, but we'll get there with the sixth graders. Um, right. No, he's been doing a lot of amazing work on, on improving the type abilities of Python lately. So anyways, I, I think that that is a good kind of establishment of the goals for this area, as well as setting our own realistic expectations for what we want the students to achieve. Yeah, so, so that'll take us next into now, how do we introduce this concept? So we have to have a starting point for the students. How do we introduce the list in the best way possible so that as many students can get into it as possible at the beginning? Yeah, it's like the planning of those learning experiences. What are what are the instruction that we need in order to get them to our end result? Always keeping that in mind. Our end result is X. How or how do we go through A, B, C, D all the way through X, Y, and Z? What are those learning experiences that are going to help build the knowledge, build the understanding, and allow the students to apply and use and really demonstrate their learning? That's right. That's right. So I always start this part of it by laying out a problem, laying out some sort of issue with their fundamental knowledge that they have already that 
could maybe it's been working for them for a while, but we show them this problem. And, and with lists, I always start with what happens if you have a lot of different variables, right? It's almost like that code smell. Like if you find yourself saying student name one, student name two, student name three, that becomes really cumbersome because you start to run out. Okay, am I on student name 343 or student name 344? That scalability um, is where lists are really helpful. And so I always lay that out as the first problem with using the knowledge we've already had before and how lists can potentially help us solve that. Yeah, and I always do it similar, but in a, a more 11 year old way, I go, wow, I need to make a list of my favorite students. <laughs> how do I do that? <laughs> and by saying favorite students, this is, this is just an example how, of how I teach with my silliness. By saying favorite students, all of a sudden the kids are like, what? We have to make a list? You're going to make a list of us? And they wait for their name to be called. And that's a little tidbit. If you're ever teaching kids, always use their name. So Sean will go student one, and then he'll fill in that name, and the kids start looking for for their name on that list. So, yeah. when <laughs> students can see themselves in their code, in whatever way, it becomes immediately relevant and much more interesting to them. So that's always something that that works well in the classroom, as well as if you're teaching it asynchronously. Give them opportunities to make it their own and make it personal, and let them see themselves in their code and they'll be far more engaged on it. Absolutely. And when you have so many favorite students, you have a huge amount of information to put into a list. So that's always a good thing to do. Is that, is that your secret? Is that they're all your favorite students, Kelly? Yes, I tell them they're all my favorite students at least once during the quarter. Good, good. <laughs> at least um, once. <laughs> so, so I also show this solution as not just lists, but I talk about how programmers use something called data structures to organize their data so that we can organize the information that we have into ways that we can use it. And that leads us right into a vocabulary section. And for sixth graders, it might be introducing that vocabulary. For my seventh and eighth graders, most of the time I'm reviewing that vocabulary with them, like reestablishing that knowledge and bringing it back to the forefront for them. But it really is important at the beginning to establish that common vocabulary for the lesson so that it makes it more efficient, it makes sure that everyone is on the same page and that they can have these tools to communicate to them, to one another and to me about what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and when I was learning Python, I can't remember exactly which instructors or videos did this, but I really like the concept of where they put comments right before every single line of code. So it's something that I do a lot for the students. So I'm constantly putting definitions and I'm constantly reviewing, how do we make lists again? What are the things, what's that key that we have to use in order to make a list? How do you know it's a string? What makes it a string? What is this thing again? Is this an integer? Oh, look, we can put integers in, in, in our list. And I constantly writing and saying those vocabulary words. So there are a lot in my code, I always tell them, look, we just wrote 60 lines of code where 30 lines of it are comments. And and it's just getting them to, to use those keys, use those comment features, and having some notes, I, I guided notes for them. And it, it's such a nice feeling because when they go back and I can give them a challenge, I say, go back and look at your code, your notes, your codes, and how can you solve this challenge based on the notes? Yeah, I think it works. It works really well, especially once you reinforce that over and over again. 
we think about where we want them to be and where we want them to go, this is where even with the the younger students, the ones that are less experienced, I really want to make sure that they have a, a understanding of real vocabulary words. So I'm not making things up. I'm not trying to make more accessible words for them. So we'll talk about how lists are ordered, that they have an order to them versus unordered data structures. We'll talk about lists being mutable versus immutable. So we want to use the right vocabulary in an appropriate way for the students so that when they progress on to those advanced computer science classes, if they see mutable data structure or a sequence, they at least will recognize that as a word that they know, even if they have to go back and look it up again to remember what it means. Absolutely. And I think one of those things about ordered list is is probably the hardest for a sixth grader to understand that a list that's A, B, C, D is not necessarily equal to a C, B, A, D list. And it was something that kids have a hard time to understand. So I always show them because I have so many lists on paper. Yes, I'm a paper person. I have all these lists and I, I show them, here's my list on my post-it and here's my list in my book. And look, they've got the same things in it, but they're not in the same order and they're two different types of lists and trying to give them these visuals and I hold up the paper and I hold up my book and I show them, look, they're, they're two lists. They have the same things on there, but they're not the same list. And that those visuals and those opportunities for the students to see something that's not necessarily code and to make a, this picture in their head, it helps to connect that idea. Yeah, it leads into another thing that's really important in our next section too in this is what examples and demonstrations are we going to give for this concept so that they can start to see how this works. And this is where we always start with real examples of real world lists. Lists are not unique to Python or even programming. Lists have been around for a very, very long time in different forms. And so when we can show them, here's a grocery list or here's a invite list for your birthday party or something along those lines that shows them here are the things that you are already familiar with that have this concept behind them it really builds their confidence that oh this is something i know this is not actually that new and so if i know it in the real world it won't be that hard to learn it in python Absolutely. Changing those things, adding in some methods along the way, sorting the list and counting the list. It's always this fun thing. So showing them an outcome in the sixth and seventh grade where if I can take the length of the list, oh, there are 60 kids. Wait a minute. I've, I've missed somebody. Who did I miss? And, and doing an alphabetical order to find my favorite student. And I always put the word all in there. And so that's the first one that comes up in the list. And I'm like, oh, all my students. Again, silliness, sorry. <laughs> but things like that, that it's, it's a real world situation. I know the grocery list is, is something that's very common. We've seen them but they throw in some funny things that they like and what is their favorite candy bar? I don't know. What do they like at the, at the store? Double stuffed Oreos seems to be a, a winner for me right. at least. <laughs> it gives them, it, it help. It, this is the important concept. It's transference of knowledge. We're not creating new knowledge for them. We're transferring it from one domain to the other. So we're transferring something they already know about how lists work in the real world and transferring that to their domain of Python knowledge. So it's always easier and stronger for students to learn when they can transfer rather than when they have to create from scratch. 
Yeah, one of those things are those games. I always get lost on the games. I, I think you help me out with, I'm like, what game is that? And you're like, oh, that's that game. <laughs> right. They can transfer this. I demonstrate that transfer. It's something I, I do explicitly. So I will show here's a grocery list that's handwritten. And then I'll create that same grocery list in Python so that they can see here's the way you do it. It's right here in the code. It's not that much different than what you've already seen. And when I'm as I'm going through and doing that, I maybe don't use as many comments as you do, but I do spend a lot of time going through, how do we know it's a list? Oh, we see these square brackets. How do we know each element in the list? Oh, they're comma separated. So I want them to spend some time recognizing and building that understanding of here's where the lists are created, here's how they look, here's how to recognize them in the future when you look at your own code or other people's code. Yeah, and and thinking about our progression, into eighth grade from sixth to eighth, things like lists within lists, so that later on we can make our our card deck in seventh grade. And it's talking about, so I have a list of my courses, and I'll do this with them. Here's math, science, English, social studies, whatever. And inside each course is a list of things I have to do for homework. So it's this list of lists, and start building on that structure. And that list don't necessarily only contain strings and integers and floats. So telling them that list can contain more things helps set that stage and that progression of learning, especially when they want to make their social and they're making ice cream um, flavors and toppings and list of it's just really and scoops they love doing scoops and how many scoops do you want for your ice cream so I've gotten a lot of a lot of mileage out of using ice cream as my example <laughs> with functions with methods with all sorts of different concepts in Python ice cream seems to be the universal constant for everyone who wants to transfer knowledge so Absolutely. So after the demonstrations, then we really start to get into practical applications. How do you get hands-on with this? What can you do? So that gets into some of the things like making an ice cream social, right? How could you organize all this information for your ice cream social so it's in lists instead of individual variables? And so we, this is a great place where we talk about using lists for all different sizes of information, right? So you might have a small list for ice cream flavors where you want to limit the choices so that I have six different flavors of ice cream. I'm going to put that in a list. And if someone asks for something that's not in the list, then I can't do that. It's an error. So it gives us the ability to work with small lists. Then we talk about say medium sized lists. Like you can use a list for all the students in the school. If you want to list all the student names, or if you wanted to go to really large lists, like maybe you might leave a weather sensor outside and look at all the weather data every few seconds for the last week. That might be thousands of pieces of data in a list that you could organize and then do some cool stuff with it. So we talk about different sizes of lists so they can start to wrap their mind around the scalability of this. We talk a little bit about when not to use a list. So a list isn't for everything. Kelly, you do some cool stuff with us about like how you get them to go into dictionaries later where you have them thinking about when would I use a list versus a dictionary. Yeah, let's go to TikTok videos, but you know, we don't want to share all my secrets here. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> some th- the best TikTok videos and I learn a lot about what goes on. Yeah, no, one of the things that com- came out during our online learning and the use of Zoom and sharing out is the idea that kids can flash their code up on a screen real quick and giving that opportunity for 
for the kids to showcase what they've done or what they want to do uh, really allows us to pull out those practical applications um, and say stuff like, oh, if you combine this and you make that one long list, or if you do this, you can enumerate through a list, or, well, that might not necessarily be a good use of lists. That's for dictionaries, and we're going to talk about that later, but I'm going to show some of you, if you want, what a dictionary is, and um, really going into those specifics. So it's really weird because each year I teach a different methods in different orders because it just depends on what the student wants to do with their app and who I call on first. So it's a kind of a fun thing. And I have a checklist of things that I've covered. And at the end of the week or whatever, I go through and I'm like, oh yeah, I covered pop. I've covered remove. I've covered a pen. I've covered sort. I've covered indexes. Oh yeah, that's great. But I may do index indices first and length last, and it just depends on what that code was that the kids wanted to do. And I think that's the benefit of how we teach is it's very, it's fluid, but it's it's very dependent on what the students want to do. And I love so, that about us. <laughs> so to make, so to, make uh, to extend this learning or the conversation, we do not put our topics in an ordered list, right? Like everything is unordered. It's a set. Order? Probably the best. Order? I right. don't know what that right. is. I, I mean, it, it really helps it become more fluid and organic to the learning process when you can separate yourself from the order of the way things should be taught. So you have some basics that, yeah, should be generally first, and you have some more advanced topics that should be generally saved for later. But you can be flexible and fluid with how you teach that. So as we go through these practical applications, as we do the ice cream social, or we do, my other favorite is the class schedule. So they make their own class schedule using a list. We start to get into a lot of these advanced topics. So we will cover things like list manipulation with append, pop, remove, insert. We'll cover list indices. Things that are confusing for students at first, like list indices being zero indexed, is a really tough thing for them to grasp at first. But once they get the hang of it, it it makes sense and they can reapply it in a lot of other areas. And that's something that goes into many other programming languages. So it is something that they may get their first exposure here, but they will use it over and over in the future. Negative indices also <laughs> uh, tend to be a bit confusing. But then the, the other thing when we get into these practical applications that I think really helps is I use the debugger in Mu a lot. I also use Python Tutor. So if you haven't seen Python Tutor before, we'll put links to this, but Python Tutor is a way to visualize step-by-step -step the execution of Python code. And it basically ends up being a, an online debugger, but you can just paste in whatever code you want and then step through it one line at a time, and it will visualize the list for you. So it'll show you, you have a variable in the global frame named students, favorite students maybe, and then it has a little arrow that shows the list being laid out on screen so you can see the order of things and as you step through your code and you pop things or you sort it or whatever you do you can see how that list changes over time so it works really really well for students to be able to see this and be visual with the list because otherwise it ends up being all in their head and sometimes it's a little hard to comprehend absolutely and and within those practical applications i have to throw out the the challenges we i had to change the name 
this year thanks to uh, code challenges, but we have class challenges. And every every single um, class period I have, especially with my sixth graders, because I really want to do a lot of assessments, a lot of quick formative assessments to make sure that I'm checking knowledge. But I, I use this opportunity for the kids to to write out the basics so going through like the the debugger method but I, I take out a little a little snippet five questions what's a definition how do you write a, a list write a list and and remove the last item or write a list and count remove the third item in this list so little things that that you would do as you're teaching but instead I do it as a, a challenge a problem so even if they don't know it, they can try to process and they'll see it and that struggle of applying that practical information in a problem statement. Yeah, and that, that gets into another part of this is like we set out those goals at the beginning. What do we want them to learn? We need to ask, how do we know they learned it? And I think many of us grew up in a system or grew up in an educational model where the assessments were all cumulative. It was the big fat test at the end and you stressed out about it and you regurgitated knowledge onto a Scantron form uh, (laughs) to be able to demonstrate that you knew all of the information for the unit. But what we've found, at least in our experience, has been that that just demonstrates recall. That just demonstrates that you can recall the information that you were taught. It doesn't really demonstrate any of those deeper levels of understanding. So for us to use these frequent periodic assessments, the the formative assessments that demonstrate knowledge in at a variety of levels, not just the recall, but the application, the the synthesis with other ideas, at, at least those levels of understanding show a much deeper acquisition of skills by the end of the unit. So we want to be able to assess that frequently and throughout the lesson, not as one big cumulative test at the end that maybe has limited use. Yeah. And so like the Python tip I always give is for, I I tweeted this out, I think is repeating and practicing concepts. It's that chunking of information over time, that process and how their minds eventually take take in is all about this chunking and repeating and and assessing and um, low stake testing. When the, when the brain is trying to make sense out of something, just deliberately practicing and deepening that, that chunk of knowledge is going to, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I, I do love reading about it. It's just gonna enlarge that, that neuron, that synapsis. Oh, there's a list. And hopefully when they, when they see mom or dad making a list of the items that they want to buy off of Amazon, that they're like, oh, maybe I can write that in Python. And, I, and you know, Mr. Tiber always says, I think there's a Python code for that. I'm sure you can do that in Python. <laughs> so I say that to them of repeating those practices. When you see those lists, think about what that would be like in Python. Think about how you would write that code. And I, I think that really gets us into the next part of our conversation or the next part of our lesson is opportunities to synthesize according to Bloom's taxonomy, right? The ability to, to synthesize information or, or demonstrate that synthesis with other concepts is a more advanced demonstration of knowledge, right? It's a, a higher level of learning. The synthesis opportunities that I'm typically looking for include, I, I love using lists with for loops. 
because I think it's really powerful to be able to say, now you've got this list of information, what do you do with it? I want to run some bit of code for on every item in that list, that iterative, let me go through every item. And I know that I'm spoiling students because it's so easy to do that in Python, to say for every item in this list, do this code. When they go to other languages, <laughs> they're going to be banging their head against the wall. But in Python, it's a really fantastic concept. And it's a, such a great synthesis opportunity. I think list slicing is great because they can add this additional piece of knowledge to slice a list and think about how that works for them to be able to get pieces of lists, right? So it's like more advanced knowledge and it helps them think about starts and ends and order and things like that are pretty impressive in the language. And then this is also where we start to look at lists of lists, combining it with other data structures. When we get to dictionaries, being able to do a dictionary of lists or a list of dictionaries is really helpful for them to be able to see how this all works together in a really cool way. And going on the emotional, social, SEL, all the little acronyms that they give for this, but always taking into account during the synthesis synthesis period is reminding them that it takes time. It takes time to learn, takes time to take in this new knowledge. And I try to remind them all the time that there's going to be times when learning Python makes you feel like you're in a foreign country like Russia or Germany, because most of them take Spanish or French or Chinese. When you're in Russia or Germany and nobody speaks English, you're going to feel like nothing makes sense. You don't even know where the bathroom is and it's okay. And that all these words and all these things that we can do, it's just your brain trying to process it. It's trying to restructure um, how you think. And it goes back to the idea of it's so nice to see their code because I can see them trying to process, trying to make that learning come out and, and make sense of all these things that they want to do with the code, but they don't necessarily know how. So always looking back at that opportunity to help them synthesize, to, to remind them that this overwhelming feeling is just them processing all these great methods of using list. And here's how you look up the information and here's where I go and here's here are the people that I like to look at and the websites that I felt were good. I always throw back to sent decks and I geeks for geeks and I show them always the first introductory page of real python those parts where they can get the knowledge, get the understanding, get the application and by getting those things start to synthesize more of the information. And there are some really great resources for this. Like Eric Mathis has a bunch of cheat sheets that are really clear, crisp uh, examples of how to use lists and list methods. The Python flashcards that he came up with too are really great. It's a really good way of making it tactile for students. So they pick it up and they can hold it and they can feel it. We can't really do that at the moment. Virtually, <laughs> but we did do it. We did, Eric Mathis, we did use his little flashcards in the Edpuzzle. And if yep. you don't know Edpuzzle, Edpuzzle gives you an opportunity to quiz during a video where, again, you're asking them to synthesize what was just given, what knowledge was there. And most of the time we do like an application and write out a list or or write out an index, indice, and how do you search for an item within a list? So things like that. Yeah, it works. It works really well. So then we, we also have to make this fun, right? Like it has to be something. I mean, I, I would say it's. It, Being in our classroom go. is fun. We don't have to make it fun. It's so much fun. 
most <laughs> most of the time. I mean, you could argue, oh yeah, we're working with 10, 11, 12 year olds, 13 year old kids, like it has to be fun for them to know it. It doesn't always have to be fun. Sometimes they just want it to be practical and useful to them like that. They see the value in that. But also if you're 25, 45, 55 years old, why not have fun with it? Like fun helps the learning stick. And so some things that we've done that make lists more fun and more interesting beyond just the, the we've already talked about the ice cream social, we've talked about the favorite students, we've talked about the things about making them see themselves in the code, the feedback that we get from students, the, the list examples, the programs that they like the most, so far have been really the class schedule where they create their own class schedule and use a list to organize it. And then when they do rock, paper, scissors, there's something about having rock, paper, and scissors in a list, and then using random.choice to be able to get the computer's move from that list seems to really click for them in terms of the usefulness of this. Like This is really fun because now it's not predictable. It's not something that I wrote. The computer's doing something at random, and that makes it more interesting. So that randomness element in your code can be really cool. So if you're looking for something else to synthesize with it to make it fun, bring random.choice into it and find a program or a game or something that they can use to make it unpredictable. And that makes it more interesting. Yeah, and I like the which one does not belong kind of thing. Mickey, Donald, Goofy, Kermit, and have them sort out and try to pop out the item in the list that doesn't belong. Silly things like that. I, I don't use student names during this time. Pop out the kid that I really don't want to teach right today, but sometimes <laughs> pop out the kid that's talking too much. There's always one of those that I know I can pick on and they love it because they get extra attention, but trying to have them find the silliness in the in the code or which, yeah, which I, I keep thinking of Sesame Street where they had those four squares and I always do that. Which one thing is not like the other? I'm not going to sing yeah. for you guys, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> things like yeah. that, fun, silly things. And letting them create their own too. So giving them the room to be able, in the space in your schedule to say, okay, we've done this now. Either take something you've learned already and make it better or try to make something new and different. And so we've seen a lot of like magic eight ball type generators, not the classic magic eight ball, but they can make their own and they find that really interesting. And the ability to add new options to the list is pretty magical for them too. It's like, oh, I could just add this one thing to the list and now that's in the mix for the answers from the magic eight ball. So and, and a lot of cool stuff. Mad Libs Mad. seem to be really popular with sixth graders. The fact that they can do a list of adjectives and then pop them into a story. And some of the stories are quite unique with those young <laughs> minds. <laughs> but yep. they're so, I'm just going to leave it like that. They're quite unique. They've got some creative, some huge creative uh, minds there in sixth grade. And it, it's fun. Just remember to keep it fun. Remember to have some fun with it yourself. And that will become contagious. So I know we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but just to touch on it at the end here, how do we know that they learned it? Formative assessments, frequent assessments of how they're doing, giving them challenges, make sure that they're demonstrating not just the ability to recall the information, but that they know how to use it, they know how to apply it, they know how to synthesize it with other information, get them to teach it to one another, help each other with debugging their programs. Those are all great demonstrations of the knowledge that they've acquired, and you can match that against the goals that you set out at the beginning to be able to see where they land. So that kind of wraps up that that the and completes the lesson is we set out something for them to learn we set our goals we introduced it to them we gave them examples of how that works 
we came up with practical applications that are hands-on with them that they can use it and try it and experiment with it and fail at it and fix it and encounter all those errors that you get with lists so that they know how to handle them in the future we give them opportunities to synthesize the information and then we make and we try to make it fun and creative give them an opportunity to have fun with it and be creative and then finally we make sure that we we have we've checked to make sure that they understand and that they've learned what we set out at the beginning so that gives us like that full spectrum of learning from start to finish we start with the end in mind and then we verify at the end that we actually got there so a lot of times I, i've done this in the past before i set out the goal i do the lesson and then i forget to check that we actually got there so we might have missed something we might have left something on the table that we could have fixed so make sure that you completely close that loop by checking throughout and reviewing at the end to be able to say did we actually get there and I always want to keep in mind, again, the social-emotional side, um, building up the idea that it's okay to fail. It's a persistence is huge. I work on persistence and what does it mean to be persistent and persevere. And I work on that a lot in the beginning of the sixth grade years and telling them that, listen, it's not really about the code. I, I'm not really teaching you about the code, but I'm teaching you skills that are going to help you throughout your your life and big picture what's going to go on through high school and eighth grade and college and your career so always keeping in mind how to interweave in the social emotional and keeping in mind also the brain science behind learning what's that neuroscience the, the ability to chunk information using these what's called a memory palace technique where were you when you make a list how did you write a list how did you find an item in the list? Did you use your finger down down a piece of paper in order to scan a list? Having them create this concept image, this chunking image, this repeating and practicing and synthesizing, always using those things within your lessons will help those concepts stick and you're not just focusing in on the code. And when you when you take the pressure away from just the code, you're going to have a better outcome of learning from your students. I agree. And and so that and it's also important throughout that process is to also recognize praise, make sure that they're getting the feedback positive and constructive to help them understand that they're on the right track or that they're achieving what they need to achieve. And because that again goes back to that brain science, the dopamine hit of positive feedback when you're doing something right in a small way, getting that constant, like, yes, this is right, yes, this is right, the the feedback rush of I'm on the right track helps them stay there and it helps train their brains to find the things that make incremental progress for them in their own learning. Absolutely. It's one of the things that has been proven to increase learning and understanding is that feedback loop. Constant, consistent, repetitive, not repetitive, but repeating the feedback opportunity for the kids. It's a lot of work on a teacher end, but if you keep the assessment small and the, the goals small each day, that feedback loop is something that is attainable for you as a teacher. That's right. It should be something that you can manage. So if it means that you give 30 seconds of, of commentary to a student each day across your 15 students, you're giving seven or eight minutes of, of feedback. So that gives you some 
some benchmarks for whether you're doing enough. And right now <laughs> there's so much going on. Even if it's just a few seconds or a few sentences of feedback for a student, it can go a long way, especially when they're not in, always in front of us and don't always get that face-to-face contact and feedback. And a little tidbit, because I know Sean just said 15 students, that's due to COVID. So I want to, <laughs> I understand there are people, teachers out there who do not have the benefit of such a small class. So one of the opportunities that you can use, me having, I have taught a class of 38 before in my life. Sean's never had to have to deal with that. Not but yet. <laughs> making, there's always, there are always those errors or pieces of feedback that are common around your students. So making a short video of an example where a student can sort a list or where a student can loop through a list. Whenever you see that, then you have this video clip of generic feedback. And even generic feedback, can, it, it can be helpful. If you as long as it's if, relevant, right? As long so as it's relevant. So if you cannot give that specific feedback to every student, make sure you give some sort of generic feedback that answers a specific question. That makes sense. So Kelly, I'm looking at the clock here and I'm shocked here. We've been talking about how to teach about lists for an hour now, which is amazing. We've really, this is something that we get into. This is one of the reasons why we teach something as simple and as complex as a list. It takes a lot of thought and a lot of practice to teach it effectively. So I know that there are a lot of people out there who have been teaching this for longer than we have teaching to different groups of students so adult student adult learners teaching asynchronously and not interactively so there's a lot of different methods out there and a lot of different ideas for how to do this we've covered the things that work for us when we're working with students in a classroom or remotely so there are probably other ideas out there so what works right share with us the tips and we'll share them back out with the with our listeners what tips and tricks have you found or what approaches do you take to teaching a concept in Python and what seems to work well. So there's a few places where you can send that in to us. You can always follow us on Twitter and engage with with us there. We're at Teaching Python uh, for our show handle, but I'm at SM Tiber and Kelly's at Kelly Pered on Twitter. So you can always interact with us there. We love having those conversations. Uh, You can also, if you're not using Twitter, you can always reach out to us through the website. If you have a longer idea to share, there's a contact form there. We love getting that listener feedback. Our website is teachingpython.fm and there's a contact us form on that page. One thing we always forget to mention is that we have a Patreon. So there's a, there are a number of people who support us on Patreon, and those funds go directly to helping us edit the show to save us a bit of time, because sometimes it takes me a little bit longer to edit than I would like. <laughs> Kelly's laughing at me. <laughs> but your, your support on Patreon goes directly to producing the show. We are not retiring from our day jobs anytime soon <laughs> to be able to focus on the podcast. We could still dream. We could still dream. Yeah, maybe someday. But, <laughs> but for now, all of that support goes directly to making the show a little bit better and a little bit more timely for you. So we really appreciate that. It's I'll put a link to the Patreon in the show notes so you can always get to that uh, from there. And we are now going to set a goal live on the air that that is probably going to fall on me and I hope we can that we can get there but if we don't say it it doesn't happen. We are going to shift to a structured schedule for releasing episodes so that we have more episodes out more frequently. We're going to be publishing our episodes every Tuesday night at midnight Eastern time. 
so Eastern US uh, time zone, we'll be posting our episodes every Tuesday night so that you have something to look forward to each week on the commute to work or the walk from your bedroom to your workspace. Uh, (laughs) And I know this is scary for Sean talking about structure because if you ever see our classroom, both of us are so unstructured, even though I do have lots of lists in my life. (laughs) (laughs) We put it on the list Tuesdays. Yep. So we are we are going to be doing uh, weekly episodes published on Tuesdays at midnight. We're looking forward to that because we know it'll help us continue to work on new topics for you, to have stuff that's more relevant and timely for you. And to that note, if there are any educators that you want to hear from, any teachers, any people within the Python community, please send us your ideas for guests on the show. We are definitely looking forward to having more voices in the community as a part of this. And as we start to structure this better and as we get into the rhythm of the school year, it'll be a nice way to bring in some additional perspectives. Yeah. And I just want to, I read a a tweet before I, we jumped on this and I just want to read it out. This is from a person that I follow all the time, Will Richardson. He's got this idea of making education different. And it's sort of a philosophy ever since I went to one of his talks years ago. And he, he did a quote that I think is perfect for summing up how Sean and I also believe in our philosophy in, in teaching is, is make space for the teacher and student agency. We're all different people. Make space for teacher and student play. We, I know Sean and I, we do a lot of play and have a lot of fun. He says, make space for teacher and student passions. We both have a passion and we want the students to have their passions come out and make space for teacher and student problems because we have to have that opportunity for us to dive into our problems. And lastly, he says, make space for teacher and student dreams. So I I think it's something that as teachers, if we can just think of those agency play passions, problems and dreams and put that into how you teach every lesson, it's going to be great. And I know that it seems challenging right now with everything that's going on in the world. Things are definitely more difficult. We're playing on hard mode this year for the school year. So the only thing I would recommend is if you can, if you know a teacher, if you have someone in your life that's a teacher that's working really hard right now to make this school year work, even though there are a lot of challenges in their way, send them a note, just a two sentences that says, hey, I can see how hard you're working. I really appreciate it. Or if you're do it for your kids, teachers, do it for a friend, and also do it for the students. Send them a note and say, I know how hard you're working and I can see how challenging this is and I know you can do it. A little bit of appreciation and affirmation goes a long way. People are working really hard right now to make this work and a little bit of a, a quick note or a positive affirmation is, is often sometimes what we need to get through the day. And from teaching Python to all the teachers out there, all the people who are working hard to make this happen, thank you. Like, thank you for all the hard work that you're doing. Thank you for making, doing what needs to be done for students to make them successful and help them continue their learning. We are in awe of teachers around the world right now. We're in awe of students around the world of all the things that we're doing. So take a moment just to appreciate one another, to take a moment to say, thank you. And you got this. And so for teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off. Mm -hmm.